if you work out your abdominal muscles without adequate nutritional intake, all you're going to do is tear them finer and thinner. So you're just going to make the sheet thinner. All that is required for all of the processes we've just been talking about to completely resolve back to lovely, normal GI function is full weight restoration and great daily nutritional intake. You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello, welcome to this week's podcast. This week, we're talking about something incredibly glamorous. We're going to talk about bowel movements. And I'm really excited about the guest that I have on this podcast because she is fabulous. And I wish that all doctors had the knowledge and experience that she does. I'm talking about Jennifer Gaudiani and um, lots of respect for this woman. And I know that you're just going to love what she has to say and get so much out of it. Um, I'm going to link to Dr. Gaudiani and the Gaudiani Clinic in the show notes. So much information on her website, a wealth of information here on the physical signs and symptoms that we go through as we recover from restrictive eating disorders. The first question that I asked Dr. Gaudiani was to tell us a little bit about herself. Hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I am Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani. I grew up in Northern California and I went back east for college. I went to Harvard College where I was an English major and a pre-med and then I did my medical school at Boston University and decided to become an internal medicine physician, which for those who aren't quite sure what an internist is, it's somebody who doesn't do surgery, doesn't take care of children, and doesn't take care of pregnant people, but takes care of the rest of the human body. And anybody who's a cardiologist or a gastroenterologist was first an internist. So I just didn't subspecialize after that, of all the ironies. I went to Yale for my internal medicine residency and chief year, and then moved out to Denver a decade ago, where I started out at Denver Health, which is the inner city teaching hospital for the University of Colorado. And a year into my employment, the head of the hospital, who incidentally is the world expert in the medical complications of eating disorders, wrote out an email, would anyone like to officially help me open uh, the updated version of the only inpatient medical hospitalization program in the country with multidisciplinary expertise in the stabilization of critical uh, medical complications of eating disorders. And having had a sister who had an eating disorder and being a feminist and the mother of two daughters, I immediately said, yes, I would love to. And that was nine years ago now. So I was basically the day-to-day Um, I I ran the Acute Center for Eating Disorders on a day-to-day basis for eight years and just had a magnificent time learning from my patients and my wonderful colleagues and getting to speak nationally and internationally. I sat on the board of IADEP for a period of time. I'm on the editorial board of the International Journal of Eating Disorders. And I'm really proud that I'm one of, I think, as of this moment, two internal medicine physicians in the United States, who's a certified eating disorder specialist and a fellow of the Academy of Eating Disorders. Excellent. And I opened opened my own outpatient clinic uh, in the fall of 2016, which takes care of adolescents and adults of all genders and all body sizes who have a history of disordered eating or eating disorders. And it's just an outpatient clinic. I'm their primary care practitioner or their specialist. 
And do you um, do you just see people in person or do you do any work via Skype or anything like that? That's a great question. I'm actually licensed in multiple states in order to provide licensed telemedicine services. So patients have to initially come to the clinic to establish care. And then once that's done, I can continue to see them via my HIPAA compliant video platform. Yeah, I think that's so important because for so many people, there's just this geographical um, gap in terms of the expertise that they can have in their area. And I think that the more the more people can access things via um, virtual calls and, you know, not actually having to fly out and see you every time is fantastic. I love being able to do that. Yeah. Um, so today we were going to talk about bowel movements and... I'm sure that you know that for people with eating disorders that this is a huge topic of conversation. And um, But I think that it's one of those that is people who are going through recovery. And when they start recovery, nobody sort of stops them and sits down and says, now I want to give you a heads up about what's going to go on as you start eating more food with your digestive system. And it really freaks people out. And it, it makes them think that they've done something wrong. Because the eating disorder is there to point out, oh, you've the eating is wrong anyway. So it just anything like that can really confirm I ate something and something bad happened with my body. Eating is therefore bad for my body, and I should stop doing it. And um, so, the amount of is this normal emails that I get when it comes to things like constipation, diarrhea, bloated stomach, all of those things, I think um, is what has prompted this podcast. <laughs> So where do you think would be a good place to start with this huge topic? Yeah, I mean, let's start with the top part of the digestive tract and move our way downwards. And and let's talk about this from a couple of different perspectives. Let's talk about it, one, from the perspective of what happens to our digestive tract when we don't eat enough. And let's move all the way down through to the point where people may have other primary diagnoses unrelated to their eating disorder, like irritable bowel syndrome and how we manage those properly. And let's get into a couple of topics like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and pelvic floor dysfunction that I've really learned a lot about in the last year. Does that sound like an all right plan? Fabulous. Great. Okay, good. So when people don't eat enough, what I like to call their cave person brain, which runs us as a mammal, can only understand that we as, a, as an animal are starving. And it's really, really good at taking care of us and keeping us alive when that happens. Because that's how we progressed and stayed alive as a species. Our forefathers, uh, genetically speaking, back in the, the early evolution days, often faced famine. And so they had to evolve with a brain that could keep them alive during times of famine. So here's what our miraculous cave person brain does is it says, I got it. We'll stop using as many calories. We'll slow everything down. And by the way, starvation doesn't mean not eating. Starvation can mean I have a restrictive eating disorder at any body shape or size Starvation can mean I'm on a diet. Starvation can mean I'm doing a cleanse. Starvation can mean just for this week before spring break, I'm going to only eat pineapple and that's it, I promise. Anytime our cave person brain assesses that we're not getting in sufficient nutritional 
intake compared with our output, it starts to go into save us mode. So energy deficit. Energy deficit. Absolutely. And it's just so important to understand that I'm not just speaking of patients who are so-called underweight. This is everybody who's in energy deficit. Um, and so one of the ways the body saves energy is by slowing down our digestive tract. It says, great, I don't want to spend an extra calorie on a wriggle of the viscera because that's not life-saving. The first place that patients can experience this is in their stomach organ itself. Typically, when we eat, we have the meal. The stomach kindly mashes it all up for us, passes it on down into our small intestine. And by the time our next meal time comes, we're both empty and hungry. When somebody is in energy deficit, and their digestive system has slowed, their stomach can develop a process called gastroparesis, which means paralyzed stomach. And that's where the stomach stops wriggling. Food may actually sit in the stomach five times longer than it should. And so when the time of the next meal rolls around, the person says, I'm still full, I'm not hungry yet. And their family goes, oh, that's the eating disorder talking, isn't it? And they say, no, I'm, I'm, I am full. I am full. And they're right. This is a medical complication of undernutrition. As well, they may get full after just a few bites. And so for people who are early on in disordered eating, they may think, look, my whole life I've been able to respond intuitively to my body's needs. My intuitions now tell me, I'm full after a few bites and I'm not hungry for the next meal. I guess I'll listen to my intuition. That's where having a wonderful dietitian is so vital because as long as disordered eating is playing the role of dietitian, it's going to give you all the wrong signals because the intuitions are wrong because your brain is sparing calories. The treatments for gastroparesis are, are many, starting with pure, natural, non-medication ones. Interestingly, high fiber worsens gastroparesis. So does really big meals and infrequent meals. We forget about dietary fat when it comes to gastroparesis treatment and eating disorders because dietary fat is fabulous and necessary, and so we continue to incorporate it. So the best thing for patients to do is to eat low fiber, frequent, smaller meals that are very calorie-dense and that have more liquids or semi-solids like um, chocolate milk and yogurt and things like that because that will pass through a bit easier. Food has to be prescriptive for a while. It cannot be intuitive because it's going to feel all wrong. And it's so scary to eat a lot of those highly fatty foods. It is until the patient starts to realize that that's exactly what their dear body wants. Mm -hmm. And that all those high-calorie foods are doing is boosting their metabolism to levels they've not seen since they were 12 and playing two sports. There is a reason I wrote a book called Love Fat, because that's exactly what four years of trying to recover on the vegan diet, low-carb diet, all these different ways. And then I realized that if I ate fat, which was yeah. what I was most terrified of, I mean, of course, my head freaked out, but my body felt so, it was like, thank mm -hmm. you. <laughs> thank yes. you. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. So that's, that's the sort of the non-pharmacologic. There's other pharmacologic agents as well that I won't go into in depth because I don't think your listeners will be like, here's how you write the order. But there's a number of things like metoclopramide or erythromycin that can really help. 
And a lot of people with gastroparesis get ignored or looked over or just not even diagnosed. You don't need to do a study, um, a radiographic study to look for this. If somebody's been restricting calories and they feel full and bloated and they feel nauseated after meals and they don't feel hungry at the next meal, they have gastroparesis. Just treat them. Just treat them. And so, but what if somebody doesn't have you as their doctor and they're going to a doctor who doesn't really understand that all of this is a symptom of this slowed metabolism or, you know, that happens when we are not eating enough food. And so they don't know about the sort of medications that you just spoke about. Would that be when someone could try and educate their doctor or? I think they should. I also have blogs on my website. There's um, Sometimes that can be a good quick um, tool to help. And then the Academy of Eating Disorders handout on the medical complications is quite good as well. And that's as a free PDF on aedweb.org. So then we think about slowed metabolism and how it affects the downstream organs. And constipation happens for exactly the same reason that gastroparesis does. Now, there's other people who have other medical GI things that we'll talk about in a bit. But for the most part, your colon slows down as well, because your body doesn't want to waste a calorie on an extra wriggle of the viscera. And when that happens, again, let's be compassionate and anticipate what's happening in somebody's tummy. Um, because a little Miralax, which just draws water into the gut, I don't own stock in any pharmaceutical, um, then makes stool easier to pass. And once again, high fiber actually just makes you more bloated when you've been restricting for quite some time. It's only later when you're better nourished that a high fiber diet helps with pooping. But some patients say, you know, Miralax doesn't work for me. And I say, all right, well, what dose have you tried? And they say, I tried a whole dose a day. And I'm like, oh, honey, <laughs> we can do double dose twice a day. As long as you don't have any negative side effects from it, let's treat until you're pooping once a day or once every other day so that you don't feel miserable and triggered. That constipation part can be, it can actually really scare people, I think. There's another topic that I think is important when somebody has become quite underweight and they begin to nourish themselves again. And it's the, I can see my lunch phenomenon where their stomach really gets big after a meal. And of course the eating disorder has a heyday with this. It says, I told you so. I told you this eating wasn't safe. You're already getting fat. Here's what I tell my patients. And having been an English major, I love to speak in metaphor. So the balloon story is if I were to blow up a balloon and tie it off, and place it on my desk. And if I drape a very thin sheet over it, you'll see every contour of that balloon. But if I throw a thick horse blanket over it, you'll be aware something's there, but you certainly won't see it quite as distinctly. And I say to my patients, in your case, now that you're eating again, the abdominal contents you have of gas, food you've just eaten, digesting food and stool are what's blowing up the balloon. And because you've become malnourished to the point where you don't have enough abdominal fat or strong abdominal muscles, your abdominal wall lies over that balloon like a thin sheet. You're literally not strong enough to hold in your abdominal contents. By contrast, I have a nice horse blanket because I've got plenty of good abdominal fat and I've got strong muscles. And so my stomach pretty much looks the same no matter what I've eaten. So when you see your stomach really sticking out after a meal, reframe it that only starved people get this. 
only underweight people get this. And actually, when you're in normal body weight, you won't have it anymore. Truth really is true. Getting through that bit to get to be a normal body yeah. weight. To, re- to realize it's true for yourself, which is why things like this are so important to know in advance. And I also think it's helpful, you know, I sort of see the thought bubble forming before they mention it. They think, if I'm supposed to have stronger abdominal muscles, maybe I'll just do crunches. <laughs> and then what I say is, if you work out your abdominal muscles without adequate nutritional intake, all you're going to do is tear them finer and thinner. So you're just going to make the sheet thinner. All that is required for all of the processes we've just been talking about to completely resolve back to lovely, normal GI function is full weight restoration and great daily nutritional intake. I love it. Thank you. Not working out. <laughs> not not crunching. Correct. <laughs> so maybe we can turn to irritable bowel syndrome. Irritable bowel syndrome is what's called a functional illness. So there are organic medical illnesses and functional medical illnesses. Organic means if I took a biopsy or a CAT scan, I'm going to see an abnormality in the cell or in the structure of the tissue. Functional means biopsy and CAT scan look great, but the way it moves is wrong or is off somehow. And IBS refers to people who have abdominal pain and bloating that is accompanied by a change in the frequency of bowel movements, either diarrhea or constipation, or in some lucky folks, both, where moving their bowels helps the abdominal pain, and it's been going on for quite some period of time. Typically, although it's not in the formal Rome 3 diagnostic criteria, People with irritable bowel syndrome have a particularly strong mind-body connection. And by that I mean, and I'm a very Western medicine physician, it's my only training modality, but I'm an eating disorder expert, so clearly I believe in the mind-body connection. It means that they are so basically intelligent and emotionally sensitive and aware of the world and feel everything so keenly that in the absence of really extraordinary coping strategies to think through that, process it, and soothe it, those stressed emotions can come out physically. And oftentimes they emerge in the tummy. So, you know, people with IBS will almost invariably tell you when I'm stressed, tired, you know, any of the, any of the sort of stressed emotions, my IBS gets worse. And, and that's just the same for migraine sufferers and for people with fibromyalgia and for a number of other things where that mind-body connection is really tough. So IBS comes in three types, constipation, mixed, and diarrheal. And there are a lot of things that can be done medically to help it. Now, it's not caused by anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa or binge eating disorder or any of the gray points in between, but the stress of an eating disorder, both physically and emotionally, are typically going to make IBS worse too. And so I always remind my patients that treatment of IBS is a holistic exercise. Holistic's gotten a bit of a bad name lately because, you know, Western medicine has become, here's your diagnosis, here's your pill. Holistic medicine has a little bit become, here's your diagnosis, here's your supplement. But what holistic actually means is care of the whole human not just for eight minutes in the office and here's your prescription, but how are all of the aspects of your life combining to influence your physical health? 
And so what I'll say is, look, I've got a number of tools of the trade that I can help treat your IBS with, depending on whether it's constipation, mixed, or diarrheal subtype, and how severe it is. And meeting with your dietitian and continuing to push ahead on your meal plan is vital. And seeing your therapist and getting wonderful care for the thoughts and emotions swirling in your soul is important. And and all of the things. So I think that something, the bit of a catch-22 in this part is that for those of us in, in recovery and are at the point where we're trying to eat more food and we're trying to eat more fat, then that causes stress, which then causes IBS. And then people say, and it's actually that food that's making mm. me feel worse. <laughs> and people attribute the IBS to the particular food that they're eating but it's, it's not necessarily that maybe you're saying that their stomach has a problem with that food. It's that it's causing them stress. Yeah, what a great observation. That's so true. No one ever said the process of getting over an eating disorder was easy emotionally or physically. It is a slog. It is a street fight. And setting expectations that while the end point of a nourished body and the capacity emotionally and physically to take in a wide variety of foods without restriction to nourish this miraculous body that you walk around on the planet with. That's all true, but nobody tells people that the intervening months and weeks are going to be really, really crappy, really hard, and to hang in there, to hang in there, because the eating disorder always wants to promise, I've got your solution. Here's what's going to make it all better. Because also, P.S., if eating disorders are being used in the service of numbing difficult emotions as you eat and your emotions come back, that can trigger your IBS too. The perspective is not that you back off of eating disorder recovery. It is that you surround yourself to the extent that your privilege and geography permit with folks who will give you loving, compassionate care and stand by you and bear witness to your suffering. And as I like to say to my patients, keep holding the lantern in the dark when you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful way to put it. Thank you. It's, I think that it's a lot of the time the, um, the sort of full remission recovery stage is, is highlighted and with good reason, because it is one life is wonderful without an eating disorder. It's fabulous. Um, but it's it's not as if one just starts eating and it's all rosy. There's this time it takes to get there. You really have to earn that remission. And it, it'll be the hardest thing. It's definitely the hardest thing I ever did. Um, worth every second of it. But I can only say that in hindsight. In the moment, did I think it was going to be worth it? No, I didn't. Because it's very painful. What a good point. Um, and then... But then how, you know, it's sort of what support can people surround themselves with to keep going on a day-to-day basis? I'm waking up today and I'm eating my breakfast. Keep going, keep going, keep yeah. going. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, in, invariably, it's a multidisciplinary team. And, and I do locate that within privilege because I respect that not everybody has the money to, the access to, the familial permission for, the, you know, the geography for a, a wonderful team. But let's imagine in an optimal world that they have access to a multidisciplinary team. Then their therapist is going to work with them on distress tolerance. 
and on sitting with those uncomfortable emotions rather than reacting to them or chilling them. And their dietitian will keep reminding them the denser the food, the less your tummy is going to hurt. You'll get through this. Your metabolism is so fast now when it was so slow when you used to restrict and give them the courage to go on. And then their internist is going to keep looking for ways to mitigate the symptoms and not say, well, you just have to deal with it. Because I've talked to so many patients whose doctor has said, I don't know, you're just going to have to get through it. I think that that's that that part there is I think one of the biggest and missing gaps just from what I see in the, like the peer field is because many many um especially adults with eating disorders now may, may be turning to other people who have been through the process to sort of give them that push hey eat nutrient dense food and, and do a lot of the sort of support part but what's really difficult is the medical part when they go to their doctor who is a professional and say this is going on and usually one or two things happens they're either just sort of ignored and brushed off or even worse i think they're told oh yeah actually maybe you shouldn't eat cheese that's just the worst that's exactly right and the problem is is that physicians are amongst the worst perpetrators of size stigma in the country and so physicians really don't know how to name their bias that they all come in with from training from having often you know come through a privileged set of of academic opportunities and so patients get missed really badly what no matter what size they are they can get missed because of size stigma a patient in a larger body uh, is going to be told to diet when she's in the midst of a life-threatening eating disorder or praised when her eating disorder yields weight loss and a patient in a so-called normal-sized body may be completely missed because they quote-unquote don't look like they have an eating disorder as if there's any such thing and a patient in a smaller body may be missed because everyone's attributing a hundred percent of the problems to her eating disorder and not thinking about could there be concurrent medical problems going on. So that said, let me tell you so that patients can advocate for themselves some of the things that I consider when I've got a patient who says, Dr. G, um, I poop maybe once a week. I have terrible bloating after I eat. It makes me think that I'm allergic to all the foods. Um, even when my stool is soft, I have a hard time pushing it out. And I've, you know, come to dwell emotionally inside my colon, which doesn't really feel congruent with my values. So talking through patients and deciding, all right, it looks like you have irritable bowel syndrome, constipation, subtype. Um, there are some medicines that can help. Of course, just standard medicines for constipation like Miralax can help. I never recommend stimulant laxatives because there's all sorts of valences to those with eating disorders that can be quite dangerous. Um, there are medicines that can assist in IBS-C. Um, and again, I, I own no stock. So Amatiza, Linzess, and Trulance are the three FDA-approved medications for IBS-C. And each of them has its benefits and its drawbacks, and some insurance will cover and some won't. But those are reasonable medicines to try as well. Beyond that, the bloating that patients experience merits workup. And there's really interesting things that I've learned because I have patients from all over the country who come to my clinic who have belly issues that, you know, others sort of haven't been able to kind of put together. Um, so 
one of the interesting associations with bloating and distension in the context of IBS or separately is pelvic floor dysfunction. So what in the world does that mean? The pelvic floor are the muscles that are slung between the hip bones. They're the delicate muscles that surround rectum, vagina in women, and urethra. And studies have shown that patients with pelvic floor dysfunction may not be able to coordinate the movements of their rectum and colon to pass stool or gas. What that might mean is that they have abnormal sensation. They might feel like they have to go before there's much in there, or they might have reduced sensation. They don't feel that they have to go until too much is in there to push out. They might have a weak squeeze, or one muscle might squeeze and one might tense up, preventing passage, and that's called pelvic floor dyssynergia. But many patients who are overall tense or who engage in excessive exercise, or who've lost and gained a bunch of weight, may not have rehabbed their pelvic floor muscles, unlike their biceps that typically come back just from typical use, and the pelvic floor is abnormal. And this is among people who haven't had a baby, for instance, because pushing out a baby can also cause pelvic floor dysfunction. Fascinatingly, studies have associated IBS constipation subtype with a 14 times increased risk of bloating and distension compared to people who don't have it, or even compared to people who just have functional constipation. And one of the thoughts is maybe it's, it's inadequate gas transit because of pelvic floor dysfunction. That can be assessed by going to get what's called anorectal manometry, and it's just as dignified and fun as it sounds. Uh, you know, the the um, technician does a series of measurements, puts a soft little balloon in the rectum and has the patient bear down, push, tense, and see what their pelvic floor is doing. But once you've made the diagnosis, happily, great physical therapy and biofeedback does a beautiful job. It can reteach the pelvic floor muscles how to coordinate together, how to relax properly, and how to play nice. And so patients can have radical improvements in their distension and their constipation and even sexual function when they've done pelvic floor work. I didn't even know about this before I started my clinic. This has really been a new insight of mine. And now I look at this in so many of my patients and it is rampantly prevalent. Yeah, wow, that's so interesting. It's really, it's really fun. And, and then what goes along with that, potentially, because all these things tend to cluster together, is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or SIBO, is caused by an overgrowth, you know, thank you very much for this, of bacteria in the small intestine. <laughs> um, we have many trillions of bacteria <laughs> that live on us and, and in us, and that's very appropriate. So when people have too many bacteria in their small intestine, they produce too much gas. And as a result of producing too much gas, the person becomes really bloated and distended. And sometimes that can be associated with diarrhea as well, or sometimes worsened constipation. The test can be a little bit burdensome. And for those with active eating disorders, I would caution practitioners to be thoughtful of this because you have to spend about two days eating quite a restrictive diet that involves like only rice and only a few of these other things. You have to be off all your GI meds. Not all patients are safe for that. So if a patient's safe for it, great, do it. 
And if the test comes back positive, you've got the, the diagnosis of SIBO and you can treat. If the test isn't safe to do, but the person has IBS, bloating, distension, you've evaluated their pelvic floor and you're like, boy, this really sounds like SIBO, just treat it. There, there's, there's very little harm in treating it. Traditionally, SIBO is treated with an oral antibiotic that's really expensive called rifaximin. And that would be typically what you'd think I would use. However, my best friend from Yale is a gastroenterologist in the state of Maine. And so wherever I can't find literature in the medical literature, or sometimes when I can, I always check in with her for best clinical practices. And interestingly, there's a couple of herbal supplements you can buy on Amazon that have been evidence-based in a really well-structured trial to be non-inferior to rifaximin. And those are called FC-cytal and dysbiocide. And so, you know, two caps of each twice a day for a month, which is a large pill burden. It's not a terrible wallet burden, but it's, it's not cheap. Um, can definitely help with SIBO. But SIBO is tough to manage, man. It comes back. It's hard to eradicate. And I've decided to add a third supplement in there that's not as evidence-based called Atrantil. Two caps, three times a day for a couple weeks. People might worsen as the bacteria die off and then they maintain on two a day. And that combination has helped so many of my patients, Tabitha, with that distension and bloating. Fascinating. I just keep on thinking how lucky your patients are, honestly. <laughs> Learning all the time. And I learn all the time from my patients as well. Huge thank you to Dr. Jennifer Galviani for taking the time to talk to me about something as important as bowel movements. Talking to Dr. Gaudiani about that made me really happy. And I think that's because you guys couldn't see because this is audio, but I, I could see her um, as we were talking and just the passion that she has around the, this topic. She understands the importance of it and she understands the gravity of it. And um, that just made me so hopeful. There's someone that cares this much about what we go through when we are in recovery from eating disorders. I wish that every person who is in recovery from an eating disorder had Jennifer Gaudiani as their doctor. I just think that for so many people, it, having that sort of resource would make recovery just I mean, what not, that's not to say it's going to make it smoother, but just having someone that can support you and let you know that what you're going through physically is not necessarily abnormal and that there are solutions, that there are things that we can do about these. So, you know, sometimes, and sometimes it is really a case of bear this out and it's going to get better, but in the meantime, you're just going to have to be brave. But to have somebody know that as well, even that is a valuable resource and really reassuring. Um, so not everybody who is in recovery from eating disorders can have Dr. Gaudiani as their doctor. I understand that, but... Maybe you can use her resources um, to take to your own doctors and say, hey, read up on this and listen up on this. And this is somebody who is an expert in the medical complications of eating disorder recovery. And this is somebody that you should be paying attention to if you're going to help me through this journey. So you can send um, them to um, Dr. Gaudiani's website. And that's www.gaudianiclinic.com. I'm going to link to that in the show notes. Um, 
And on that website, there are lots of blogs as well on these sorts of topics, which I think will be fabulous references for anybody listening to this, but also to give to your professional teams or doctors that are trying to help you out. And I'm going to link to some of the most prominent ones in the website. Um, Dr. Gaudiani has, has given me a lot of links that she thinks might be the most helpful to people. And she's also got a book coming out next year. Um, called, it's going to be called Sick Enough, a Guide to Medical Complications of Eating Disorders. It's not out right, right now. You can't use that as a resource right now, but it's something to keep an eye on. So keep an eye on her website and, and wait for that to come out because that, again, can be something that you can reference your doctor to and say, hey, check this out because this is going to help you understand what I'm going through. Thank you for listening. If this, this topic came up because somebody emailed me and said, could you do a topic on bowel movements? So, hey, presto, you got it. If you have anything that you would like me to discuss, you can email me at info at You can also contact me through my website, which is just tabithaferrar.com, or you can tweet at me. It's at love underscore fat underscore. Thank you for listening. Cheers, and until next time, cheerio.